Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Marcus Cron. We interview experts so you can understand all aspects of real estate investing. Whether you're a passive investor or an experienced syndicator, this podcast can guide you on your journey of building wealth through real estate. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Hey guys, Marcus Cron here. Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I'm joined by Jeremy Roll, who is an extremely knowledgeable passive investor across numerous real estate asset classes. He has a wealth of knowledge about how to conduct due diligence on passive real estate investment opportunities. So you're gonna really wanna listen into this episode. So Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, really appreciate it. And we were just before for the audience, for those of you in Canada, I was just, uh, just talking about the fact that I missed my Timbits, for those of you who understand that. So, yeah, yeah, all the Canadians will understand Tim Hortons, yes. Tim Bits. It's, it's, uh, it's what we live for up here in Canada. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, thanks so much for joining me today. So, a little bit about Jeremy. I just want to introduce him before we kind of dive into this interview. Jeremy started investing in real estate and businesses in 2002 and left the corporate world in 2007 to become a full time passive cash flow investor. He's currently an investor in more than 70 opportunities across more than $1 billion worth of real estate and business assets. As founder and president of Roll Investment Group, Jeremy manages a group of over 1,500 investors who seek passive managed cash flowing investments in real estate and businesses. Jeremy is also the co-founder of Four Investors by Investors, a nonprofit organization that was launched in 2007 with the goal of facilitating networking and learning among real estate investors in a strict no sales pitch environment. FIBI is now the largest group of public real estate investor meetings in California with over 30,000 members. Jeremy has an MBA from the Wharton School, is a licensed California real estate broker for investing purposes only, and is an advisor for Realty Mogul, the largest real estate crowdfunding website in the US. So Jeremy, I just want to let you kind of tell a little bit more about your background, let the audience know who you are and what you're currently focused on. Yeah, no, no problem. Thanks again for having me. So, um, you know, I'd say the best way to describe me is I'm kind of a full-time passive cash flow investor uh, for myself. Um, I started investing in passive cash flow opportunities as a passive investor in 2002 after the dot-com crash. And the reason why I did that is I was sick and tired of the lack of predictability of the stock market after the dot-com crash for kind of my longer-term retirement account. And so um, I looked for more predictable cash flow, which means to me more lower risk cash flow. So on the real estate side, I typically invest in a lot of commercial real estate and some residential that's 80 to 100% occupied, stabilized. And may or may not have any value at upside. Uh, my, my whole thesis is I want to go to sleep tonight, wake up tomorrow, and not much has changed, which ironically, you know, we're, we're, I've got my pandemic hair and we're recording this in May. And like, you know, that, that's clearly not happening right now. But that's my general thesis. And um, the cash flow, so I rotated all my money of stocks and bonds into cash flow between 02 and 07. The cash flow got me out of the corporate world in 2007. And so I've been a full-time passive cash flow investor uh, It's for about 13 years now. Uh, but I've been investing in, in passive cash flow items for about 18 years. Um, and my goal is to just continue my cash flow snowball to you know, get, make it bigger and bigger so I never have to go back to the corporate world. That's kind of my number one thing. And without trying to sound like an infomercial, because I really don't want to sound like an infomercial, like the cash flow has really, truly changed my life in many very positive ways. So I'm a cash flow guy. There you go. That's pretty awesome. So I mean, what was it that initially triggered you to get get involved with real estate? Like, was it somebody introduced it to you? Like, hey, you got to get after this cash flow life, or what? What ultimately was it that said, "Hey, I need to get into this uh, real estate game"? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So I like the fact that I can get it passively. That was huge because I was working at Disney headquarters at the time here in LA and Burbank, and I was way too busy with my job to do anything actively. So the fact that I could invest passively was really important. Um, the fact that I can invest in more stabilized opportunities was important in terms of the predictability of cash flow. And the fact that I was investing in something that was asset-backed or asset-based. So when you invest in real estate, you've got the asset that's behind it. So if it gets completely mismanaged, you're still going to have that asset unless you end up foreclosed, obviously. If you're investing in a business and it gets completely mismanaged, the actual you know cash flow from the business can go away because you're actually investing in something that's cash flow based uh, as a business as opposed to an asset based cash flow business. So um, you know, so I, I like the fact that uh, real estate being a hard asset could potentially hold its value in the long term and um, ended up being a really good fit for me. Over the years, I've diversified into. I mean, we can get into it if you want, but a lot of different things. I invest in ATM machines. I've done like just a lot of things. Um, and because I'm all I'm a huge fan of diversification. That's like my number one thing. Um, and so but real estate being hard asset, you can kind of find low risk, you can go passive and, and it's cash flow focused. Those all were the big check boxes for me. Yeah. And you, you brought something up there where you kind of mentioned the diversification. Uh, you've already mentioned about your, your preference for low risk and your tolerance of, of risk in any investment. So, you know, how does multifamily on? Well, I know you invest across all asset classes in real estate, but um, kind of want to focus a little bit on uh, multifamily today because that's kind of where uh, the show particularly focuses on that asset class. So particularly in real estate, multifamily, like how has that fit with your preference for low risk investments? Like what is it about the asset class or real estate in, in, in general that, that you like that fits well with your investing uh, criteria? Yeah, multifamily is a really good fit for me for a number of reasons. And in fact, I call I put in my kind of what I call tier A asset classes for the next 10 years. I have four asset classes I'm focused on for the next 10 years, keeping in mind that you know, there's a thousand ways to invest. But the way that I do is I'm looking for predictability. And when I mean predictability, I don't just mean the day in, day out cash flow. I mean, is there going to be demand for that asset in five or 10 years? And it's a really good time that we're recording this because if you look at office buildings and retail strip centers, which I have actually currently have investments in as well, um, you know, where is that going to be even in two or three years, let alone 10 years, right? That predictability is not there. And so when I invest, I try and invest kind of longer term, typically five or 10 years at a time. And I look for predictability. So apartments to me just seem to have very predictable demand going, you know, as far as that I, I can see, as far as that's probably not going to change if you're in the right location, that type of thing with the right type of asset and the right product. Um, I love the fact that a lot of it can be very well diversified. So when I invest in an apartment community, each, each asset class I invest in has a different threshold. But for apartments, I like to be in a 100-unit-plus building so that if one person leaves, it's, it's not a major hit to the bottom line and it's not a big problem. And so I love the fact that I can get diversification. My personal focus is typically one to 300 units, like below non-institutional but a good size. And I just love the diversification aspect. Uh, I also love the fact that those assets are very readily found you know, in high, high volume, like they're just very readily found. And frankly, they're also in high demand from investors. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And why that's important is because it's going to have more liquidity than a lot of other asset classes. So, you know, dollar for dollar, I would bet that you're going to have less bids on an assisted living facility, for example, which I still think is great. And it's one of my tier A assets for the next 10 years versus apartments, because there's so many investors seeking apartments. And you know, the fundamental reason, I think, is because people can understand apartments probably best of all the asset classes because most people have lived in an apartment at some point in their life, right? There's a very good chance that they've lived in an apartment short of a house, you know, putting single family aside and just looking at all the other asset classes. That's probably the common theme. So it's actually really easy to understand the basics of an uh, apartment business as well. And therefore, it's easier to analyze than some other asset classes. 
So there's a lot of check boxes for me, but being able to get that predictable cash flow and diversified tenant base with a lot of experienced operators, and what I think is an asset class that'll be clearly in demand for a long time, those are like checking all my boxes. Awesome. So, I mean, you are a passive investor, very different from an active operator who's actually managing the deals. But I mean, your level of sophistication and your understanding of the deals are probably much further beyond the typical passive investor who's who you know will do some analysis on a deal and be like okay yeah i'm going to place my capital with this sponsor or this uh, operator so how did you get that education to become such a sophisticated passive investor to you know be at this level yeah it's a great question so um there's a combination of few things for, first to be fair like i just for whatever reason my math works very well with math, my brain works very well with math i don't know why it's always been the case when i take standardized testing i do much better on math than verbal that type of thing so that gives me a bit of an advantage already because that certainly helps. Um, another thing I'll say is that um, the really the way that I went about it is I learned each asset class that I invest in today through what I call opportunity exposure. So the cool thing about opportunity exposure is that it's much easier than it used to be, at least in the U.S. I can't speak for the same in Canada necessarily. But in the U.S., if you're an accredited investor, which is basically an investor of a certain net worth or a certain income level, then you can actually log on to Realty Mogul or any other crowdfunding site and in your pajamas at 10 p.m. at night. And in an hour, you can download 5, 10, 15, 20 apartment opportunities and then actually lay them all out on the counter and then compare them. Like you can see, you know, what are the expense ratios? What are the going in cap rates? What are the presumed exit cap rates? Uh, you know, um, what are the business plans and how do they differ? Um, what are the assumptions on like if someone's going to renovate units? What's the cost per unit to renovate roughly? Uh, on a high level basis. And so what I did was I took uh, a lot of different um, uh, opportunities over time. And this was much harder to do when I first started. In 2002, I had to go network in person and networking, meaning just to find the right contacts to get those opportunities from. Today, you can do all this in an hour in your pajamas. So it's very efficient today. And so I always recommend opportunity exposure to learn. And what you're going to want to look for is the similarities and the differences, right? And then start to understand, okay, well, if someone's offering me a 4% preferred return, I'm just making that up, that's standing out because most of the other ones are seven or eight or whatever they are. And then if someone's offering me a 20% spread of the profits, that's standing out because usually the splits are 50, 60, 70, 80%, right? And then you start to learn about how all these things look. And if one person's assuming that the renovation is going to cost you know, X amount per door, and another one's assuming twice that, you've got to ask yourself, well, which one, what's going on, right? And you can learn from that. And so my recommendation continues to be opportunity exposure, even across all these years, because you can learn a ton. And now it's really, really efficient. Right. So, I mean, you don't come across many people that are considered full-time passive investors as a career, right? So, I mean, you probably get some stunned faces when you tell that to somebody that you meet at a barbecue and you say, oh, what do you do for work? And you say, well, I'm a full-time passive investor. And they're probably imagining in their mind, oh, you probably sit back on your couch all day, collect mailbox money. So what does that actually look like in reality? You know, yeah. you're a full-time passive investor. What does that look like? Yeah. And to be honest with you, like for an outsider, I don't even say full-time passive cash flow because they, they won't really understand what that is. And I don't blame them, to be honest. So um, yeah, I actually live in LA and I'm literally surface streets a at the moment probably like a 15 minute drive to the beach and i am never on the beach during the day like i actually work harder now than i did in the corporate world and the reason is because my number one focus is finding opportunities to continue my cash flow stream and reinvesting and compounding that cash flow and networking is basically the number one way that i do that and it's really challenging because it takes a lot of calls and a lot of 
you know, networking events and conferences to really build up. So one thing I'm very lucky about is that once you start to build that up over time, it becomes easier because as you build up a bigger and bigger network over time, and I've got 18 years of it now, you get more and more stuff coming to you without even really having to do the work. And so I spent all day networking, trying to find opportunities, um, talking to other investors, talking to other, I actually am my own investor group, but talking to other investor groups, and then also talking to operators. And I'm just trying to get a sense of what's going on in the market all day long. I read a lot of economic news. In fact, I read um, one and a half to two hours a day just of economic news, literally, just that. And so, um, you know, I am busy full time. If somebody clicks on my schedule link right now, it's literally like I'm backlogged typically two to four weeks back. Um, so it's not at all what somebody's picturing because the problem is that if you, if you have a million dollars in your bank account today, and then you invest across 20 opportunities, say, and then you started getting this cash flow, that'll work for a few years. But then at some point you got a problem because now you haven't networked and where are you going to find your next deals? And if you're really trying to do this right, you've got to look through a lot of deals before you pick one, just like an operator would. You've got to be picky and be very careful. So you have to get ahead of all that. And I have to also be hyper-diversified, I call it, probably in more opportunities than most people. And that gives me a lot of peace of mind, but it's a lot of work. So there's a lot that goes into this, and it's not at all, um, you know, what that stereotypical picture looks like. All right. That's a good background there. So now I kind of want to shift a little bit and, and focus on how you analyze your deals, what you're looking for when you're doing due diligence on a particular investment opportunity. So when you're initially looking at an opportunity, what are some of the most important aspects that you look at? So like, what are the first things you dive into and you're like, I really need to get an understanding of this is if this is the opportunity for me? Yeah. So um, first thing I'll say just before I even dive into that is that, and this is just one person's opinion, but my philosophy, and I should say, everybody, I'm not an investment advisor. So anything I'm sharing here is just my opinion as an individual investor. But you know, the first thing I do, yeah, the, the, the number one focus for me and the most important thing is actually the operator, who I'm making a bet on. The number two focus is the actual asset itself. And it's a very close second. The asset's very important. But who I make a bet on because I'm giving them control in exchange for being passive, that's a really, really critical. So I just want to put that aside for now, but I want to let everybody know that that's really key. If somebody sends me an opportunity, um, just random, I get it in my email right now. The first thing I'm going to do is go look at, because I'm a passive cash flow investor that's low risk, so I look for stabilized cash flow. So I'm going to look at, okay, what's the cap rate that somebody's paying? and if I don't agree with that cap rate, which is basically a multiple of the cash flow, I'm automatically just going to put it in the garbage because that means that they're paying too high of a multiple, in my opinion. And the most important way that I can protect myself as a low-risk investor who isn't adding much value, if at all, when I invest, is that I have to buy it right because I have to add extra padding or make sure I have some padding. And the only way for me to do is to buy it right if it's not being, the value is not being created within a business plan commonly. I do a little bit of value. I just don't get me wrong, but it's still a critical point for me. So that's the first thing I'll look at. Um, and then if that actually looks okay, then I'll start to get a sense of like, okay, what's the business plan here? Is it congruent with what I look for? Is it high value add? Is it, or is it less value add? Or like, you know, does it fall within the box that I target basically? Um, is it even the right asset class type? So I don't invest in class A typically, and I don't invest in class C. I look at class B specifically. So Sometimes that's hard to really discern, right? One person may call something class B and the next person may call it C. So with apartments, for example, I have specific um, you know, metrics that I look for. So I prefer to be in a 90s build or newer. Um, and I also prefer to be in something that has nine foot ceilings or higher. Um, that's a structural thing so that I'm thinking 10 years out, you know, where could I have an issue where there might be less demand for an apartment you know, 10 years out when we have to go resell it? So those are two very important components I'm looking for. How new is it? 
um, so that it still caters to kind of like the modern, uh, you know, still falls within class B in a few years. And what are the ceiling heights that's still going to fall within a class B in a few years? Um, if that checks the boxes, then I'm going to start to look at the projected cash flows and I'll see, okay, year one, if that hits my target, you know, because I have a minimum year one and a minimum average annualized cash flow, if those hits my targets, then I'll start to look at the background of the operator just to get a sense of who they are, how many deals they've done. And then I kind of jump into it from there. But there's very specific things I'm looking for right up front. If it doesn't meet my cap rate requirement, my cash flow requirements, um, if it's not going to meet the, you know, the build date requirements or the ceiling requirements. And I forgot to mention one more important thing. If somebody sends me like a 10 unit apartment building, it's a pass for me. It's got to be well-diversified tenants, um, you know, as far as the size. So those are some quick common ways that I can filter stuff out. The most common way that I actually filter something out these days is just on the pricing because I'm very low risk and I've been on the sidelines since the end of 2016 for the most part, except for kind of unique pricing situations. And I've really been pushing my operators to sell. I've been involved in over 30 exits in the last three years. And um, right now when we're recording this in May of 2020, I'm very concerned because um, you know, if you look at historical recessions, normally there's price adjustments and those take a year or two to fully play out. And so it's still very early for me to consider something because I'm waiting for really three things. One is um, what I call vacancy discovery, like where are we going to end up after all this in the next few months? Um, two is rent price discovery. Rent prices are already adjusting that I've seen in some markets and I can expect them to continue to adjust down. And three is then cap rate discovery, which we haven't really seen that much of yet. And so this takes time and I'm not really in a rush. I don't want to jump in too early and then buy it too expensive still after waiting all this time. So, so that's kind of where I stand and what I would look for initially. But right now, today, it's very hard for, some, for, for me to find something that makes sense at the very moment. Right. So one of the things that you really stressed the importance of is making a bet on the operator, the manager of the deal, because, I mean, they're essentially the ones that are going to be managing the deal and making sure that the business plan goes according to plan and they can actually make those distributions um, they can hit their return targets. So what are some of the things that you are looking for and how do you conduct due diligence on an operator? Yeah, great question. So, you know, this this exact question could go on for hours, but I'm going to try and keep it high level. So my philosophy is that I am trying to find someone who is looking to, who is conservative and who is looking to underpromise and overperform to build long-term relationships with investors. And that can be seen in both the numbers that they put on the paper, their assumptions, and even in kind of how they conduct themselves in some you know, ways you can see how they're answering some questions and reading between the lines. I, what I'm trying to avoid is someone who's really aggressive, is trying to make the numbers look really good for marketing purposes, doesn't really care if I reinvest with them as long as I kind of, they kind of get enough money put into this deal and they just move on to the next. So get high, high level, I'm looking for the right philosophy and the right fit for me personally. Um, now, figuring that out can be... Um, you know, easier looking at numbers than kind of the intangibles. And a lot of what I do is, uh, you know, I almost um, treat an opportunity like, you know, I'm, I'm a private investigator and I got to figure out what's wrong with this. And, and essentially, I ask a lot, I actually average probably 100, 250 questions that I ask on an individual opportunity to the sponsor. And some of that's going to happen in writing and some of that's going to happen in, on phone call, let's say. And some of it may be in person. And um, sometimes I'll ask questions that actually, I am not actually as concerned about the answer than I am as to how they answer it so that I can figure out if they're really conservative or not. I can give you some examples, but I think, that, you know, the reading between the lines and the fishing to kind of get that information is very, very important. So I also do background checks on every single operator I'm investing in, so every managing member, and that's very, very key. Um, and I won't invest with somebody unless I met them in person at least once because 
in the end of the day, we could talk, we can go on about all this, but to me, it's a gut check and the, I want to feel 100% comfortable and I can't get there unless I actually meet someone in person and finalize that gut check because I've actually seen my gut check change both ways, positive and negative, having met somebody. And so you got to remember that when you're investing passively, you're giving someone control in exchange for diversification. That's my philosophy. And so, um, but you're giving someone control. You're going to have a tiny piece of the video without much of a vote. It's not very significant. And so you've got to really do property diligence on an operator before you move forward with them. You brought up a great point about, you know, meeting the peop- the operator in person. It actually raises an interesting topic that I wasn't actually expecting to go to, but just in the current climate we are in right now, where it's actually quite difficult to meet people in person due to COVID-19 and, and social distancing practices and all of that. So could you kind of talk if, if that's something even on your, on your radar, how you might be conducting, I mean, I've heard some people call it virtual due diligence. Is that something you would even consider, you know, whether it's on a, a web call or how would you kind of work around that? Or is this something you've even considered? Yeah, great question. So the good news for apartments is that I find that apartments are easier to analyze than some other asset classes from afar. So just to give you an idea, um, if you're going to invest in a self-storage property, um, it's very common for half the traffic to be roughly to come from drive-by traffic. And it's one thing to look at it on a map, but you've got to look at, you know, you're going to have to go there and look at traffic and patterns to see how close it is to the main strip and stuff, similar to retail strip centers and some other asset classes. Those are uh, much more key to see in person. Now, I think it's still very important to see apartments in person, but I can get over the hump looking at a map and seeing where it is and running a lot of comps. And because there's typically a lot of properties near each other, you can get a lot of data. Um, that may not be, you may be the only self-storage property within a mile, right? So um, it is, I think, easier to do virtual due diligence on apartments per se. Um, I have not yet faced a situation where I have looked to invest in something quite yet. I've come across a couple things that were, I wouldn't call them close, but they were interesting. Um, what I will say is that I think that I could see myself invest. So th- there's an apartment syndicator who I've actually invested with about 15 times. And he approached me the other day with a deal and it didn't work out, but I would consider doing with him and I would consider doing without seeing that property in person. Um, I know him so well and I've invested with so many times over so many years that I know his philosophy. We're very much in alignment with how conservative we are. Eight out of 10 times he brings me, nine out of 10 times he brings something that's a fit for me because we're so in alignment and I know how he operates. And so that's going to be a much easier hump to get over. If I have to go invest with someone brand new, I'm not even sure that I could, honestly. Um, that would be really, really tough. Um, but I don't know the full answer to that yet because I haven't put to the test yet. So, yeah, I mean, and how about the angle of actually meeting somebody in person? You, you mentioned about the physical due diligence of the property, but um, would this be a time when you wouldn't even consider taking on, let's say, a new syndicator or a new deal sponsor because you don't have the opportunity to meet them in a time like this? I've, actually going through this now where a group that's going to be conducting due diligence on our investment group, typically they're always have to meet the group in person. Now this is actually a group that's across the border in the States uh, coming to conduct due diligence in Canada. And typically they just fly across the border and, and meet us, but now there's actually border restrictions, so they can't. So they're going to have to conduct like a virtual tour potentially of our office or things along those sides. But I mean, how would you kind of, is that something you would even consider or look at like, Hey, having a, a webinar or is it, you wouldn't yeah. even take on somebody new during this time. I have to say that would be a tough uh, hurdle for me because one thing I do for my due diligence, especially with someone brand new is that when I look to meet them, I actually prefer to meet them uh, for a property tour than at the office. And one of the reasons why I do that 
is because, and each asset class different apartments isn't quite as applicable for this, but it's still important, is that I can learn a lot about how someone thinks and you know about how comfortable I can get with them based off of a property tour and an area tour. And, and I, I'm going to give you an example that's easier to understand from retail. Okay, I know it's not applicable as applicable to you guys, but it's going to make more sense. So when I go on a retail strip center tour, there's two different types of tours that I end up having typically. I go to a hotel, I fly in and stay you know, overnight. And then the next morning, someone picks me up. Now, either they pick me up, drive me right to the property, and or even like they'll say, meet me at the property, right? And then we'll do you know, a nice tour of the property, look at some of the shops, look at the parking lot, look at the condition of the roof, and the, you know, et cetera, and maybe look at across the street at another competitor. That's one due diligence run. And that gives me a very good sense to an extent of what that person may be like. But what I prefer happening, and this is completely optional, I let them decide how they're going to run this, is somebody picks me up from my hotel and they'll spend, you know, the first half hour before we even get there, drive me around showing me, oh, yeah, like this is one of our competitor strip centers, check out all the tenants, you know, here's why I think we're okay against them. And then they'll go down as they're going down, you know, here's the next one, um, you know, and they'll give me the entire history of all of the due diligence they've done, basically, right? And then after that, maybe we'll go grab lunch and we'll talk more about the surrounding area. And maybe they'll just tell me a little bit more about it. And I walk away and I'm like, okay, this person's really, really thorough, right? And to me, like when I let them, so this is reading between the lines, right? Because I don't ask for anything. I don't ask for an agenda. I just let them guide everything. But by watching what they do, I can get a sense for their personality and who I'm making a bet on. And that's why this reading between the lines is very important. And so the, without being, being able to meet someone in person at a property and do all this, it's very hard for me to get a sense of that. So my very long answer is I'm not sure that I'd be able to actually invest with someone first time unless I had a lot. And that being said, for me personally, I'm very lucky because I've built up a very big network over the past you know, many years. And I know a lot of operators. I already have a list of operators I want to target for the next, next upturn specifically, either people I've already invested with or people I haven't, but I want to, but I've already met in person. So I'm kind of starting from an easier place, so to speak. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. Um, like I said, I didn't didn't even intend to go to that direction, but just in the unique circumstances we're in, it's kind of interesting to hear uh, from your perspective how how you might adapt uh, because it's it's just interesting times and and investors uh, people are adjusting across you know all businesses and it's just interesting to see how how people adapt to that. So when you're looking at a deal, you're usually going to get your hands on you know in, in Canada at least it's called the offering memorandum, states private placement memorandum. But I mean, you get this 100 plus page document. How are you reviewing that as a passive investor? You know, what are you looking through? What are some key indicators that you're like, hey, this is a good deal or no, this doesn't fit my criteria. How are you tearing that document apart? Yeah. And so again, I'm going to try to keep it high level just to make it more simple. But, you know, to me, there's in the US, there's three things you, you really have to look at. One is the business plan, which includes a performer typically. And you know, you got to look and say, okay, do I agree with this business plan as far as like what I'm targeting? Um, and then reading between the lines on how some things are written, which I'll give you an example real quick. Um, you know, if uh, you're in a hundred percent occupied apartment building, it's been 100% occupied for 10 years in a row. I'm just using an extreme example. And somebody models it with an 8% vacancy. And then in the thing, they'll say, you know, in the offerman, or they'll say, you know, this building has been occupied for hundred percent for 10 years but we model it with an 8% vacancy to be conservative. Just that one line tells me a lot about who I'm making a bet on, right? And I can even ask the question, even if it's not written out, I can then ask the question, why did you use an 8% vacancy 
when it's 100% occupied? And that may seem obvious because I just gave you the context. But what if the answer is, well, you know, uh, there's a lot of new supply coming online and we're concerned about it. That's a very different scenario now you're getting into from a risk perspective, right? So you got to ask these questions, but you can learn a lot by asking these questions, right? And don't make any assumptions, ask the questions. So looking at that business plan and that pro forma and digging into it is really, really key. And I actually go by line by line on the revenues and expenses and assumptions on the pro forma. It's very important to understand where someone's coming from and whether or not you agree with what they've done, right? And then then in the U.S., there's the PPM or private placement memorandum, typically, which is essentially a disclosure that's required by um, either the SEC or FINRA, I forget who, that basically is a disclosure of a lot of the risks um, and then also the fees and some other very important things. And of course, you're going to read through that and especially the fee section and the risk section. Those are very important. And then finally, what I think that a lot of people tend to glance over, which I think is very important, is, you know, we normally invest in an LLC kind of vehicle, like a company in the U.S., and that has something called an operating agreement, which is essentially um, the rules of the company, right? So those are critical because when you're passive, you're giving someone else control. They have to follow these rules, but you also have to know what the rules are and you have to make sure you agree with them. So as an example, um, if you, um, let, let me think of a really good example for this. Okay. Let's say that um, you're curious to know, like in the worst case scenario, well, not worst case scenario, but a bad scenario, there's a cash call. Okay. What are the rules? Like, what's the interest rate if it's debt? Do I have to put an equity first? Are they going to go for debt first? Do you like those rules? You can't change them after the fact, but you got to know what you're getting yourself into. So I read the operating agreement very, very thoroughly to understand what the rules are and to see how much flexibility and how specific it's been. Because if it's a very generalized, non-specific operating agreement, that gives the operator a lot of leeway to either send you or not send you stuff that they owe you, such as reports, quarterly cash flow distributions, all types of stuff. Under what circumstance can they be held accountable? How big of a vote does it take to replace a manager? Um, what exactly is required in the reporting and when exactly is deadline to send it to you? When are they even required to send you a tax form by as a deadline? All these things are going to be included in there, or maybe not. But if they're not, that means that they can do whatever they want, right? So it's important to understand the rules and make sure you agree with them. So all these three components are very, very important. And I go through them quite thoroughly, but you've got to really review all of them. Yeah. And like you mentioned, you could probably go into extreme depth. And, and like you mentioned, you went, you go through line by line, challenge the assumptions. But I mean, that's a good high level overview of what you're looking for in those legal documents. You know, from a broad perspective, I mean, the highest level you're probably going to look at is the market that you're going to be potentially investing in. So when you're looking at a market for multifamily investment, what are some of the things that you look for? Like, what is it that makes it desirable to be like, hey, that is an area that I think I want to place my capital for the next five years? Yeah, great question. So I'm going to look at first, first and foremost at the population side and the average household income. Those two are one of the two, really two of the really key things for me to understand. So I tend to, uh, because I'm investing in class B, um, I tend to avoid like um, very low price. So if you have a $500 class B apartment building, that's kind of concerning to me um, in that I'm usually targeting a class B asset in a kind of an A minus or B area. I don't invest in a C area, so to speak, right? Even from an income perspective. Um, but also very important is growth trends, right? You don't want to be the person who invested in a city that is declining without realizing it's declining because you didn't analyze it. And then five or 10 years down the road, you wake up, you're like, why is it that my rents haven't been able to catch up with inflation? Oh, this area has been declining. Why is that happening? You could have potentially seen that in the, you know, by, by analyzing things up front. So I tend to take a look at population growth, household income, and actually 
sometimes it's as simple as thinking of net migration trends. Like it's a fact that right now, um, Florida and Texas are the top two projected states in the U.S., for example, for population migration, for retirees, and for many other reasons, tax purposes, and all this in the next 10 years, right? So if I'm looking at Dallas, I'm already starting a bit of advantage because it's actually benefiting from population migration that's projected. There's other places on the flip side, um, which I won't name, but there are some places in the U.S. that are on the decline. And, you know, you may not know it unless you do the research. You may be getting into a deal you wouldn't agree with. So you can't just trust that the operator is necessarily done all the research, but also is in alignment with what you're looking for. You've got to trust and verify. That's what I say. The verification point is very important that a lot of past investors don't necessarily do, but it's critical. Yeah, because I mean, doing the due diligence, you're just really you're doing a risk assessment of the opportunity, making sure that you have your bases covered and, and really looking in to make sure that the operator did their homework, right? And I mean, you can validate the claims they've made. And, you know, you mentioned even look at to see if they actually did the research that they're, um, maybe they didn't even do it all together. And they're just saying, oh, well, here's my glossy slide deck. And yeah, there's population growth and it's doing all these great things. But I mean, if you don't actually fact check and, and look for yourself, then you could get caught in, in a market that isn't actually what it, it was uh, you know, proposed to be by the operator. Yes, I want to just point a couple more things up because I'm trying to keep it simple to keep it short. But you've got to look at climate, weather. You know, do you agree that you want to invest in a certain asset class in a hurricane area or tornado area or earthquake area? Um, you've got to look at employer concentration. You can actually have a much higher risk if there's a mine. You know, it's a mining town two, two blocks away. And, or, you know, two miles away and everybody living in your, like, you know, you, you can invest in an oil town, for example, or a mining town. And what happens if the mine closes or the commodity price goes down? You have to have a very diversified, eclectic economic base. There's a lot of things to look at. I just don't want to make it overly complicated. But, you know, I want to point out those weren't the only two things. So Yeah, yeah, no, per- no problem. So we kind of looked at the high level at the market. Let's go in a little bit more uh, detail into the property in particular. Um, and I know you could probably go extreme detail, but from a high level perspective, when you're looking at a multifamily property, what are some of the major things that you're looking for from a due diligence perspective to analyze an opportunity? You mean the actual physical property? Yeah, the physical property, whether you, I mean, you mentioned you you go tour the property with the operator. Um, what are some of the things that you might be looking for to make sure this is the asset that you want to be investing in? Sure. Yeah, I'm certainly going to look at the condition. Um, you know, it costs a lot of money to repave roads and, and costs a lot of money to do roofs, costs a lot of money to potentially change a bunch of air conditioners. There are certain things that have a lot of capital expenditure associated with them. You're going to want to look at those items and really understand um, and talk to the sponsor about, did they actually do that assessment? Did they have an independent person come in and do all those assessments? And what does that look like? Um, and are they properly reserved? So let's say that they say, the roads are fine today, but they may need to be redone in a few years. Well, are they keeping enough reserves for that? Or is that going to come from cash flow? You've got to make sure that they've done that correctly, right? So um, those are very important boxes to check. Another interesting thing to consider, too, is that in some areas, the type of structure you have is in more demand than in others. So, for example, and again, I'm sorry I'm using U.S. examples, but that's what I know better. So, you know, in Texas, it's very common to have a 10 to 20 acre garden style, they call it two-story apartment building that's class B that's kind of sprawled out. People are used to living in these two-story complexes. There's going to be a pool, um, maybe multiple pools, depending on how big it is. And that's going to be what people demand, okay? As an example, if you had a 40-story apartment building next door to that property, that may have less demand. People potentially want to have access to the ground, have access to the pool. It just, um, 
you know, it's a, and this actually is true across many asset classes, self-storage being a great example where, you know, self-storage is even easier to understand. Um, in many markets, if you have a one-story self-storage property and you can back your car right into your storage facility or into your actual unit, that's very important. Whereas in LA, because the cost per square foot of land is so high, I expect to be in a four-story public storage, you know, unit, but I won't necessarily be able to back in. But, but if you try and put that four-story unit in an area like T Dallas or Texas has a lot of land, you're actually going to potentially get less demand, all things being equal, just because of the actual structure itself, right? So you're going to make sure the structure makes sense for the area. And I really think that those nine foot ceilings for someone like me for class B are very important, but overlooked very often as far as what's to continue to meet demand down the road. Uh, and also you're going to understand if, if the sponsor is planning on actually increasing or decreasing any of the facilities that are being offered. So for example, one sponsor may say, yeah, this pool's kind of run down. We're just kind of like going to, you know, cement it in and it's going to be gone. And another sponsor may say, oh, we're going to completely redo the pool. We think that can actually add a lot of value and increase the rents. Or we're going to put in a play structure because we want families here and that's going to bring more families in, right? So you're going to want to rock around and see what is there right now and what are the plans and kind of make sure that you agree with those things. Because a lot of it's subjective and you may or may not agree with it as a business plan. Right. You know, making sure that the asset actually fits in line with what's what's surrounding the, in, in the area surrounding, making sure that it's in demand. You know, you've mentioned the nine foot ceilings and th those different structural types. What are some of the things from a financial perspective? I actually want to ask you a specific question here. I mean, sure. I know you go into extreme detail, but just from a high level, like you hear people talk about expense ratio. I mean, what is an expense ratio and why is it so important to look at when you're assessing a, a property's pro forma? Yeah, expense ratio is a great thing because it can give you a really, really quick back in the envelope calculation of how conservative or how aggressive was this person in, in kind of calculating the cash flows are likely going to be. And what I mean by that is that um, expense ratio is essentially the ratio of revenues to expenses. So let's say that you're making a dollar of revenue at a property. If the expenses are 50 cents, your expense ratio is 50%, right? If it's 60 cents, it's 60%. So what's interesting to and very important to note is that you could do a really quick calculation without even go line by line as to what's going on in those expenses and say, look, if I'm invested in a class B apartment in Texas, then the expense ratio typically falls between X and Y percent. If it's outside of that zone, it tells you something. If it's below that zone, in other words, expense ratio is lower. It could tell you the person has been very aggressive and not conservative enough. And, you know, the numbers may look better than they may actually become, right? Because there isn't enough inflation to be assumed or for whatever reason, you have to look into it. If the ratio is above and they've actually taken a very high percentage of revenues, you got to understand why. Because on the one hand, it could be because someone's very conservative, but on the other hand, there could be something else you're not thinking about. Is it because you're in a cold climate and the utility costs and the heating costs um, are not necessarily uh, going to kind of like diversify it off onto the tenant base and you're paying for it. And wow, that could actually cause a lot of fluctuation in cash flow because the cost of heating oil this winter may be very different than it was last winter, right? Um, it's a very important to understand if something's out of the range, so to speak, why it is and really look into it. Don't make any assumptions about it. But what I love about the expense ratio is that you can start off already giving you a directional understanding of, you know, is this completely off whack or not? And this goes back to what I was talking about at the beginning with taking, that's a really good thing to do when you're doing opportunity exposure and you're trying to compare opportunities next to each other. As long as they're in similar uh, locations, so the climate isn't different, and they're a similar business plan of a similar asset class type, it's a really great mechanism to look at to get a sense of how conservative has someone been.
Awesome. That's a great explanation. So, you know, if somebody's looking to get started in passive investing, what would be your top advice for somebody that's looking to analyze opportunities? Do you have any like very high level details on what you might recommend to somebody that wants to um, get involved in passive investing? Yeah. Um, you know, first thing I'll say is if you're brand new, take it slow. Um, you're giving control to somebody else and an asset that's illiquid and that unlike a stock is very hard to sell. You can't just go press sell on your screen and then get your money in three days. So that's a very important thing that you want to be very careful with going into this. Number two is that it's a fantastic time to learn right now because in my opinion, you're not missing out on that much because we're you know just starting this pandemic potentially and prices in real estate adjust much more slowly than the stock market. It takes typically a year or two to bottom out if you're looking historical. So you have a year or two now to learn where you're not going to miss out on much and that's a great opportunity. Um, what I would say is that you want to pick an asset class if it's multifamily, for example, pick one to begin with and then try to start to learn. I strongly recommend the opportunity exposure um, that I mentioned and um, also start to network. And another thing you can do, and actually this is really interesting what's going on right now. So, you know, we have our four investors by investors meeting. Most of them are in Southern California. And, you know, before in February and January in last year, if you lived in BC, British Columbia, and you want to come to our meeting in LA, you're welcome to join us, but you got to fly down. You know, right now, if you want to get education, you just have to log on to meetup.com, which we use. And I'm, I'm not plugging them, it's just what we use to promote our, our, um, our events. And just search on Foreign Investors by Investors Los Angeles, and you're actually going to be able to watch our virtual meeting. And so what's crazy amazing right now from an educational perspective is that you can go across Canada and the US and pick and choose meetings that suit your exact need and watch them virtually and get maybe a panel or an individual speaker discussion for education. And that is not the case just even two months ago. So there's a great opportunity to learn a lot right now in your pajamas, sitting at home. You're going to miss out on the net in-person networking, unfortunately, but you're going to benefit from being able to check out meetings. You could probably watch a meeting every single night, literally seven days a week, and you could never do that before. And that's a huge, interesting point right now. So it's another thing I strongly recommend you consider right now. Yeah, it's a great time to get educated as it is a unique time in the market. And and there's just so much education available out there, right? Whether it be from books, podcasts, uh, meetups, uh, virtual meetups is what you're referring to as well. And um, actually curious, what, when do you actually host your uh, your meetup? Is it every, is it weekly? Is it monthly? Or yeah. So, yeah, so I don't host any of our, our meetings anymore. I used to a long time ago, but, um, you know, ours, uh, we, I don't know how many active ones we have right now. I think we maybe have about seven. Actually, seven in California and several out of state. So, um, you know, the, we're, ours are typically monthly. We have one that's every two weeks, but most of them are monthly. Um, and they're mostly typically in the evening. Most will start at 6.30, 7 p.m. Pacific time for the ones out here. But you know what? That's actually, I would say that our meetings are great or whatever. Like, I think they are. But like, you, this is for any meeting. I'm not trying to pitch our meetings. Just There's a lot of meetings out there you have access to now in the correct time zone that you're in if you want to do that. Um, and I would definitely recommend meetup.com. And starting to search around, you know, even major cities. So if you live in um, BC, you can look at LA for the time zone, or you can look at San Francisco. If you live in Montreal, where I'm from originally, you can go look at New York and just add our New Jersey or whatever access, even Florida, and access a ton of great meetings in your time zone. It's just a great resource. Yeah, that's some great advice. So before we wrap this conversation up, I want to take it to our final four questions where you give short to the point answers. So, Jeremy, you sound extremely educated and knowledgeable on this. Uh, on real estate, on, on numerous asset classes. So what is your favorite real estate or business book? Yeah, if you're brand new, even if you're not, I strongly recommend two books in this order. 
uh, Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and then Cashflow Quadrant. I would read them in that order and both of them. Um, if you've already read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, but have not read Cashflow Quadrant, I'd still recommend reading Cashflow Quadrant. Um, really good mindset book. Totally. Yes, definitely a mindset book. Read, I've read both and you, you know, I can't even count how many times I've heard that recommendation from real estate investors, the rich dad, poor dad, it seems like the gateway to uh, people learning about real estate and, and really focusing on cash flow. Yep. So what is one thing you wish you knew when you got started in real estate investing? Bottom line is I, re- I wish I came across this earlier because I'm a big proponent of like long-term thinking and long-term kind of compounding, but it takes a long time. So you know, the earliest, and I actually was like, I think I started when I was 28, which is pretty young still. But if I would have known this 10 years ago, before that, even like I started 10 years before that, um, I really wish I had stumbled upon cash flow sooner. And I wish I really understood that this passive cash flow even existed because it's not something that anyone in Wall Street markets. And, you know, cash flow, uh, I tend to think that I get better returns than an average annualized long term return of the stock market. And getting the cash payments and the cash flow with the tax man, everything together, it's just a really interesting world. So so what's a daily habit that helps you be successful in real estate? Great question. I'm very disciplined with my schedule. So I'll schedule calls during certain blocks of time. I'll do emails in the morning, emails in the afternoon, calls in the middle, have some time for impromptu calls if need be. But being very disciplined about that and holding to all that kind of keeps everything in check. And one other thing very important is that I will actually spend time the night before just re-researching the people I'm talking with the next day. And I send myself a time-delayed email the next morning so that if I'm about to jump on a call with somebody, I'll have a note about them as to either how I met them, what we're talking about, whatever, because I'm on so many calls that just is so helpful versus saying, oh, I forgot you know, what we were supposed to talk about today or you know, I'm, I can't remember who they are or whatever. It takes more time, but I think it's very worth it. Yeah, no, that's a great tip. So when you're not working, you know, you're hanging out, what are you doing for fun? Uh, with my kids, typically. Um, you know, I'm a car guy. I love cars. And, you know, that's a side note. Um, but I'm typically with my kids on the weekends and even at night playing just some sports. I have two boys and they're like 12 and 9, so they love sports and all that. So typically with my kids and my wife. Um, and uh, that's kind of my stage in life right now. So, Yeah, I'm sure they keep you busy. Um, I've got a... How old is he now? He's probably 14 days or 16 days old now. I just oh had a newborn God. son. So uh, it's kind of been a life change. Congratulations. Keeping me pretty busy and <laughs> adapting to the new sleep schedule. You're very awake. At least you appeared to be to me anyway. I remember those days. Yeah, I think uh, not last night, but the night before I had my first night that I slept through the whole night. So um, that was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. So last thing here, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, easiest way to reach me is through emails. And don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm happy to help if you're new and you're just curious to ask questions. If you are an uh, experienced investor who wants to network, if you're an operator or a group who may have deals who just wants to network, I'm happy to talk to anybody, honestly. And don't hesitate. My email is jroll, J R O L L, at roll investments, R O L L investments with an S.com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. Awesome. So Jeremy, it was awesome having you on the show today. You are a wealth of knowledge and I, I know we just barely skimmed the surface level on, on how much depth you can go into on this real estate passive investing due diligence. So I'm really grateful to have you on the show and share your knowledge uh, with my listeners. So thanks again and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Really, I just hope it was helpful for your listeners, but thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Okay, take care. 
If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. If you enjoy the podcast or if it provides value in any way, make sure to leave a five-star review. This helps the show attract top quality guests who will be able to provide even more insight into how you can build wealth through real estate. Talk to you next time.